You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Women that come into the workforce are not asexual, and they also have lives outside of the workforce. So burnout is not just because of the work demands. We know, statistics say, we're doing 90% of the work at home. Yeah, we are burnt out. Self-care is an understatement for women. And mental health is the first place where I think we feel it, but don't address it. Exciting career changes could be in your future, but what does that mean for your wealth? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Get the expertise you need to help you dream more, demand more, and do more. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. In recent years, there have been a lot of strides made to make women and women identifying people feel more supported in their workplaces. Banking giant JP Morgan, for one, recently announced an expansion of its family leave policies. Kudos to JP Morgan, enabling all new parents to get 16 weeks of paid leave for the birth or adoption of a child. Their Employees are now eligible for four weeks of leave to care for a sick family member, and women will get up to 20 days of leave following a miscarriage. And yeah, J.P. Morgan, it's just one company, but it's a company that boasts more than 240,000 employees in over 60 countries. So this is a big deal, and we hope that many corporations, many corporations will follow suit because not only do Women and mothers shoulder the lion's share of caregiving responsibility. Mothers earn an average of 58 cents for every dollar that fathers make. And that's because long hours, important business trips, and hustling for that next promotion, they're all that much more difficult when you're recovering from childbirth or taking care of an infant. Today, we're going to dig deeper into women's health in the workplace, because if we really want a level playing field in our careers, and we do, we have to talk about a lot more than just parental leave. We have to talk about all the aspects of our health that affect us at all stages of our lives, and that means our periods, abortions, menopause, so much more. We also have to talk about mental health. Research from the American Psychiatric Association shows that women are twice as likely as men to develop depression, generalized anxiety disorder, and PTSD. And of course, All of those things are even more complicated for women of color and queer women who face additional physical and mental health hurdles that make it that much harder to succeed in their careers. My guest today is Joy Altamare, Chief Revenue Officer of EHE Health, which is a healthcare provider that specializes in helping companies build preventative health programs for their employees, which includes things like setting up pop-up clinics in the workplace and expanding telehealth options for employees and performing research to help employers understand the health needs of their workforce. She's also the host of her own podcast. It's called What the Health? Great title, which explores the biggest issues that women face in healthcare and how we can solve them. Joy, welcome. Nice to have you here. 
Thank you, Jane. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Can we start with why it is so important to have this conversation? Why do we need to be talking more about women's health and what inspired you to get involved? For sure. You know, it's a lot of what you said in our intro. We need to talk about women's health because, first of all, if you don't discuss women's health, the holistic package from puberty to menopause, you are ignoring the family because women are the crux, the backbone of the family. We're the, what you said earlier, we're the partners, we're the mothers, we're the daughters taking care of the aging parents. And so we don't bring the discussion of women's health to the forefront. The women out there in the world that are doing all those things aren't taking care of themselves. And so the backbone of the family will deteriorate. So that is why we have to discuss it, number one. The second reason is because there isn't enough attention. <laughs> so when we talk about employers and how they design their benefits or their healthcare plans, when we talk about policies and how they're created to support primarily reproduction and or returning to work after baby. When we're talking about pharmaceutical companies and they're thinking about what should they be testing and exploring to help create greater options for women, most of those things aren't happening. So if we don't discuss them, then they will never be at the forefront of those conversations and nothing will change. And so we discuss it because we want change to happen. The reason why it's so important to me, and I was telling my friends this the other day, as you age, as you grow up, I turned 45 this year and I was saying 10 years ago, I was newly married and without any children. I don't think that I was talking about these things because I hadn't had enough life experience. Now as a mom of an eight-year-old, for me, women's health, holistic, comprehensive, thoughtful, intentional discussions around women's health from puberty to menopause is my life's mission because from the moment I had her, I was thrust into a world of healthcare that I'd never seen before. The moment they told me I have to go on short-term disability to supplement my income, my first question was, am I disabled because I'm having a baby? Because that seems like a general thing that happens. We do it every day, every hour a baby's born, but I'm now classified disabled because I'm having a baby. That was like the spark for me. The fact that this country and the healthcare providers and employers, no one has thought of how this is described incorrectly, titled incorrectly, and no one has thought to change it. So that's why I started it. It's a life's mission for me that my daughter, when she is my age, will not have to deal with these battles in the workplace, at home, anywhere in the world. Where do you see the connect the dots kind of a line between our health, our professional success, and our financial security? Oh my God, that's such a great question because they're, I think of them as like a Venn diagram. They are so interconnected. Number one, let's take financial security, financial independence cannot happen if you're not employed or an entrepreneur. You have to have some sort of income. The only way you can do that successfully is to be healthy, is to have a balanced life. So when we talk about, I think you mentioned 53, 56 cents to a dollar a mother makes. We know also women of color make even less than white men in the workplace. That's just the baseline. Do I have access to the financial means to take care of myself and my family? And if I have access for that job, do I have the mental capacity, the physical capacity? The, am I healthy enough to maintain the stamina to do the job? And if I don't have support from the employer beyond just basic 
vision, dental, those things, if I don't have mental health access or behavioral health access, if I don't have financial planning, what we do at EHE Health is part of our protocol is to make sure we ask people when they come in for their physical exam, the conversation is around, do you have a living will? Do you have a financial plan? We've emphasized that with women because we find that seven out of 10 women do not have a living will or a financial plan or planning for retirement beyond what their employer puts aside in a 401k. So I use this phrase, Gina, a lot. A person who's in the survival mode will never thrive. If you are consistently trying to figure out when is your next meal, you will never be free in a mental space to create, to grow, to evolve. So when you think about women every day in this kind of overwhelmed, burnt out hustle mentality, if they're juggling all these balls and there's not a thoughtful, intentional conversation around how do you feel? How do you think? What's your mental capacity or stamina? And then coupled with the fact that they're dependent on that job for their financial freedom, if that's not in sync, then you're not going to be healthy. You're not going to be able to survive. You're not going to be able to thrive. And you're not going to be able to live longer, healthier, productive lives. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think over the past couple of decades, as employers stopped offering pensions, stopped providing health insurance with the job. And I know that, you know, I'm an employer. It is really, really expensive, right? But this divide between health and wealth and the realization that you can't have one without the other has really come into much, much sharper focus. And it's getting worse. It's not getting better. I 100% agree. I think people, the divide between the have and have nots is getting greater in our country. I think that you mentioned JP Morgan, they're doing amazing things. There's companies all over the country that are doing amazing things, but there's still a lot of work to be done because some people don't qualify for their company's benefits until X amount of hours. What are you supposed to do with that? If you're working full time, but you still don't qualify or you don't qualify for the premium plan, These things are, I mean, I'm a big believer and I talk a lot with our employer customers in equitable access to beautiful options, benefits. You know, there should not be a hierarchy in healthcare in America, honestly. Yeah. And don't even get me started on people who are gig workers. I mean, they don't have the safety net at all. I unfortunately don't think we can solve that problem here today. (laughs) Not today. (laughs) Let me ask you, what do you see as the biggest health disparities that women face that also impact our careers? And where do these disparities come from? So I think, number one, it starts with the fact that when we talk about healthcare in America for women particularly, it's really aimed around puberty. So a a little girl, a young woman, a, a young adult is taught about how not to have a baby most of the time when they're in biology class in high school. And that translates all the way into college and then the early years of their 20s if they're, you know, still single and dating and and focus on building their career. And I think that miseducation is the beginning of this kind of disparity that exists in healthcare for women. We we kind of couple women into having a baby or not having a baby. When we're so much more layered and nuanced than motherhood and fertility. So I like to talk about the fact that healthcare needs to be from what's going on with puberty and everyone's is no one's monolithic, everyone's different. What's happening when you are in your childbearing age 
but you may or may not want to have a child? And then more importantly, what are the things that you need, the building blocks and foundations that need to exist as you age, as you get toward menopause? We don't talk about menopause a lot. Doctors are not informed to talk about menopause either. So when you go to your OBGYN, for the most part, you're just talking about, we call the bikini exam. Are my breasts good? Do I have breast cancer? Do I have ovarian cancer? Can I have a baby? Your primary care physician, this is the healthcare system, right, is taking hopefully your blood, but most women, nine out of 10 women, never go to a primary care physician on an annual basis. They're just going to their OBGYN. So when we see the rise of the last decade and a half in cardiovascular disease in women, it's because they're only going to the OBGYN who's not checking their lipids, and they rarely go to the primary care physician over the course of two to three years. They rarely go. More importantly, those two physicians aren't talking to each other and looking at the woman holistically. So we see in men's health, men go to primary care physicians more often, and when they do, they're getting everything looked at. Because they don't have to go to the gynecologist. Correct. They and go they to don't one have to doctor. go to the urologist unless they have Correct. a problem. Yeah, Correct. I agree with you. I don't think we talk about menopause enough at work. And I think, and with our doctors, it's why I feel like I've grown up with my OBGYN. We actually yeah. had her on the show a couple of years ago, but she delivered my kids and she's a couple of years older than me. And she's gone through everything a couple of years before me. So she does yes. the research on herself. She does, you know, the me search and then she tells me all about it. So look for a doctor like that. I have the same relationship with my doctor. So I moved to New York. I'm 45. I moved to New York about 20 years ago. The same OBGYN I have had this in, in 20 years. She was the first person who told me when I was single and young and fun living in New York, she introducing freezing my eggs. I froze my eggs at 29. Would have never thought of that had I not had this doctor. She delivered my babies. We are now at 45 talking about perimenopausal. Like, this is a relationship, but I lucked out. I have many yeah. friends and my mom group. They have no idea what's going on with their bodies, and their doctors are telling them, oh, you're just, that's normal. But it's Ugh. not normal. Hair loss, you know, migraines that are happening not associated with your peer, like your premenopausal. And so there's things that you can start talking about, but because the healthcare system is so separated and fragmented, there's no general discussion to support women. And just thinking about these women who are still going to work every day, raising families yeah. every day, and they have this big question mark around their health. That is, I mean, it's not a fair. It's, honestly, that's the best phrase I can say. It's just not fair. No, no, it isn't. And you should, by the way, if you're listening, you should never have to suffer through hot flashes in a work 100%. meeting. There are solutions for this. So <laughs> talk to your doctor or just talk to me. I, I, I know I've got the scoop. Let's talk a little bit specifically about women's reproductive health. We've got the J.P. Morgans of the world who have stepped up to offer these great leave policies. My friends Andy and Garrett, they work for two forward-thinking companies. She got four months of leave. He got four months of leave. They were able to take eight in total. I was like, where was this when I was raising my kids? But the fact is that the federal minimum is still zero, which is Correct. ridiculous. What do you think should be the standard paid policy for parents? So I'll tell you what we did at my company here at EHE Health. When I joined EHE Health, again, I'd already had my daughter, so I wasn't in the thrust of it, so to speak. But we didn't have any paid leave for any parent. We had, I think it was like two weeks off you would get. And I was astonished that a healthcare company did not think through that. And we changed it. And we changed it to paid leave up to four months. 
for both parents. We changed it to also if you're adopting or you have a like whatever you're if there's a new baby in your family in your home, you had up to four paid months leave. I think. I would love six months. I would love a year. A friend of mine works for a global beauty company. And in America, they get a year. I would love that. I think our country, that's like baby steps to get there in America. I think culturally, we just aren't that way. But I think four months, and I think the studies have proven that's appropriate. It's a good amount of time for bonding with baby as parent for both parents. And I think what your friends did is the ideal way if you can have eight months with parent that bonding, that nourishment that you have for the baby and the family, you will never get that one, that time back. But also studies have proven that it's better for baby. It's better for they do better in class when they eventually go nutrition, digestion. All of these visits to the pediatrician in the first early years are reduced because of how that nurturing environment exists. It also helps mom, I think, with postpartum because I remember I had my child and I didn't go back for four months. But I didn't know that until I hit three months. And I said, I'm not ready. And luckily, my employer was cool enough to say, OK, take as much time as you need. Come back when you're ready. Around four months, I was like, I'm, I have to go. I'm, I'm ready to I'm get ready. out of this I gotta house. I got to get out of the house. But, you yeah. know, I would say the standard is four months. But I think it's less about the number of months and more about the discussion. Right. What I described at the end is this flexibility my employer had because they understood the importance of happy mom returning to work versus stressed, anxious mom returning to work. What if you work for an employer who's not there? What if you work for an employer that is in the two week world and you take short term disability and that's the way it is? Can you change things from within? And as a follow up to that, if you are the gig worker, what do you do? I think those are hard, hard, hard scenarios. Let's take the first one first. I think what has really proven and we've seen in employers that we work with are these small groups of employer-ran groups that come together and they say to the employer, this isn't working for us. Employers have to listen to employees today because we do have a war on talent regardless of the industry you're in. If you want good employers to stay with you, the retention rate in this country is falling because employers understand they have options, particularly post-COVID. A lot of people working from home, they're not going to want to return to work after they have a baby in two weeks. You're going to have to be flexible. And so I would say if you are that employee, there's strength in numbers. You definitely need to come together. And as an executive, what moves me is when I see more than two coming together, and there's statistics or data to support this is why it's important. I know that sounds horrible, but I think it's employers are thinking, how is this going to be good for them? And so in some ways, you have to shape that discussion or argument to them. If you're a gig worker, I would say definitely you have rights too. And I think a lot of employers that we're working with particularly are saying to us for our part-time gig workers, what benefits can translate to them as well? So I would say ask for these as that level employer because employers are looking to retain you as well and they don't know what they don't know. So you have to kind of raise your hand and say, this is what is needed for me to stay loyal to you, to stay with you. Employers are fighting to maintain really good talent and they want you to stay with them. That's such a good point. Yeah. Another aspect of reproductive health that I wish we 
we're not talking about in this way, but we are, is abortion. Yep. Since Roe was overturned, women have just faced a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear around their bodily autonomy and their ability to access life-saving care. So how do you think employers fit into this conversation? Yeah. Employers are the conversation. Employers actually, you know, let's just quickly take a quick background of how insurance works. Employers pay into it to benefit employees. So the way that it changes, the way that insurance providers change their policies and coverage is if an employer says, I need this, which can sometimes circumvent law. Sometimes, not all the time. So that's like something that most people don't know, but because I work in this industry, I understand that. When Roe v. Ray was overturned, I remember getting on a plane, landing overnight, waking up, and the world was different. The panic attack that I had propelled me to say, what do we need to create? We created a blueprint for employers to say, if this is how you should be addressing this with your employees, number one, talk to them and listen. Ask the women that work for you what they need. What support do they need? Because you remember there are a lot of people coming out, we're going to do this, we're going to have a travel stipend, blah, blah, blah. Let's be realistic. A $3,000 stipend does not help a woman who needs an abortion because, number one, she has to come out of pocket. She may not have it. Number two, abortions are not teeth cleanings. They don't happen so quickly and you just bounce back. Number three, statistics are clear. Women don't like to travel for certain procedures like abortions. They want them close to home. So... Number one, let's talk and listen to what women need in your as an employer, right? No, absolutely. And I think that we have to give kudos to those companies that have stepped For up sure. and tried to do something, right? Starbucks, Microsoft, Amazon, yes. Netflix. I worry about the people who are not comfortable enough talking to their manager and saying, yes, I need to access this travel policy to go get an abortion. I mean, even if yeah. the company itself is supportive, the individual managers or the coworkers might not be. So here's what you're talking about. You're talking about HIPAA. And so what we advise our employer customers to do is that, number one, just like COVID, we use the lovely thing about COVID is it taught us how to separate information so that certain people like your boss or your direct manager will not have access to your health information. So what we proposed and said to employers and what we did ourselves was there is a anonymous way in which an employee should be able to access that. You know who that's through? Your provider. And so most providers have an anonymous helpline, email helpline, person you can talk to to access that benefit, and your employer doesn't even know other than it's embedded in the claim that they see. That is the safe way, but the employer has to start with understanding what's required, what's needed. Your employee population may look different than this next one, so maybe have optionality built in the plan because what I may need may not be what someone else may need, and then have a system that's confidential for them to access those benefits. That's how you create equitable health care for all of your the women that work for you or the men who have females in their lives that need to access that because we forgot there were some plans that were written that forgot about that. I'm like, what about the husband whose wife is on the plan and she needs to access it confidentially without her husband knowing because he doesn't have access to her health care? Like these are things that you have to think through and there's no law around it yet. Right. So employers have to step up. Employers have to take on the authority of how are we going to lay out the framework, the blueprint. Right. Yeah. 100%. And I think a lot of what you just said 
applies to mental health as well and accessing care for mental health. I want to dig into that in just a second. But before we do that, let me just remind everyone that we are proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. And when you're up with the sun or burning the midnight oil, we know how hard you work to excel in your career and that it takes grit and determination and skill to get to where you are today. But what if things change? What if maybe you want to open a business or go for a promotion or move halfway across the country for your dream job? How does that affect your finances? How does that affect your wealth? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because with an integrated approach to wealth management, you'll get the expertise that you need to help build momentum with your finances and your career. We are back with Joy Altamare, CRO of EHE Health and host of the What the Health podcast. And let's talk about mental health. I mean, over the past couple of years, there has been a sea change, I think, in conversations about work-life balance. One of the lovely things about COVID, I mean, I got to tell you, that <laughs> is a phrase I never thought that I would hear. But yes. but I think that that one of the other lovely things about COVID is that it's gotten us to this place where we talk about mental health a little bit more, about the great resignation and quiet quitting. And these conversations have been led by women who took on the brunt of not just childcare responsibilities, mm-hmm. but care responsibilities mm-hmm. during the pandemic. Where do you think we are in terms of taking care of our mental health? I think it's such a great question. <laughs> I think we've done a lot. I think that a lot of employers and a lot of individuals have elevated the conversation and Society in general is a lot more, accepting is the wrong word, but understanding and supportive. However, there is a lot more to go. I think as a culture, we still want to compartmentalize and label things as the same. Mental health, behavioral health is so nuanced, so layered, particularly for women in our life stages. The way that the anxiety that I may feel at 21 is very different than the anxiety that I feel at 35, at 45, as I enter aging menopause at 65. And there's still just not enough research to provide support for every woman. Things like telehealth medicine, I think, has provided greater access, right? But the expertise, the cultural relevance, still that's not there for women of color, for aging mothers, all of these different things that you're feeling, it's almost like we've done the job of creating access to meet the demand, but the meaningful piece, which is the content and the actual therapy, we have a lot more to do there. We have a lot more to do there. And so I like am super excited when I hear about employers or individuals creating these programs for women. My big concern is how are we evaluating if they are being impactful? Because success is not measured on utilization. Success for me is measured individually by each person who's engaged with it. Has it been impactful? Has it been useful? And this is coming from a person 15 year by therapy. <laughs> like I live <laughs> and die by therapy. You know, I think it's super important. And I think it's both proactive 
can be reactive, but in its best state, it's maintenance. It's keeping you accountable. I don't think we have enough therapists who can do that for women and not put us in a bucket. Oh, you're 35, stressed out about work. No, I'm 35, stressed out about work and my new baby or I'm 35, stressed out about work, and I don't have a baby, and I'm trying to get pregnant, or I'm 35, stressed out about work, and my parents are dying. Like, there's so many things. It's not mm-hmm. just I'm 35, stressed out about work, you know? For those people who are stressed out about work, yes. do you think burnout <laughs> is a women's issue? I think burnout is universal, number one. I think there's levels of it. But I think what you described earlier, you know, I think about myself, I'm the only female in my executive team of average age, 55 year old white men. So there's eight of them and me. COVID happened. You said like, I had no care. (laughs) Everyone stays home. And I remember being on a conference call at a certain point, it was like around one o'clock. And this is when we didn't understand Zoom. And you had those hologram figures. So like, Anything that came on the screen kind of came through, like it was kind of sci-fi. So all of a sudden, all of these plates of food were being delivered. I kept seeing it one after the other. Wives' hands giving food to these husbands as we're on this marathon call. And something clicked. And I said, I have to go. I have to get off of this call. And everyone was like, I was like, is someone from your house coming to my house to make me a sandwich? No, I I have to go. And they were like, because at this point we were also, you know, men and women communicate differently. And so this was like, we've solved it. And now you guys are bored and you're hiding from your families. I have to be that. I'm the mother. I'm the wife. I am the person making the lunch. So I had a little discussion with them around how they should probably look around their household right now and see the things that probably need to be done and go do them because their wives are tired. Their wives are tired. And I am also tired, so I'm getting off this call and I will talk to them tomorrow, (laughs) you know, because, yeah, that's the burnout that we're feeling. I feel like, you know, we're worried about the older parents. We're worried about the siblings. We're worried about our husbands, our partners, our, our spouses. We're worried about our children. We're worried about the food, the pet food. Like when COVID happened, I think what it was a major awakening that women that come into the workforce are not asexual and they also have lives outside of the workforce. So burnout is not just because of the work demands. We know statistics say we're doing 90% of the work at home. Yeah, we are burnt out. Self-care is an understatement for women. And mental health is the first place where I think we feel it, but don't address it. And so we need to definitely look at, I call it mental stamina. Do we have enough mental stamina to make it to the next day and beyond? Because if you're just living for the next day or hour or the next day, that's not healthy, productive living. No, I think you're right. So how do you get off that treadmill? How do you create the space in your day, right? If you're a striver and I think, (laughs) you know, I think like me and like so many of our listeners, you're a striver. How do you create that space where you can give your brain, if not your body, a rest? First of all, I think it's important to recognize the privilege that I sit in, right? So I say what I'm going to say in the future, but I recognize that this is not applicable to everyone. I've always been a striver, to use your word, even when I had no authority in the workforce, (laughs) right? So I recognize the privilege of being an executive and being able to say, I need a break. So I'm going to just 
say that first as kind of like a caveat to my advice. But my advice has always been, and what I've always practiced, number one is the concept of on the airplane, put the mask on yourself before you give it to someone else. I live and die by that. At moments, I've not been so good at it, but I live and die by that in the sense that I have always carved out moments for myself. Now it looks different as a mom. I do it early in the morning. I wake up an hour before. Some people think it's crazy, but I need that time to myself. I look at moments where I can basically throughout my day have moments of peace and gratitude to just center myself. This is important for me to show up as my best self because my mental or anxiety comes from when I've had an outburst that I wasn't my best self. And I don't know if you do Enneagram work, but I'm an eight as most CEOs and like strivers are. And so the best part of being an eight is really using this energy to engage and ignite And so to do that, I need to carve out times for myself throughout the day. So on my calendar, it's like non-negotiable. I have these things called GSD time, which is get shit done. Most of them are, I can just either sit and write because I need to write for my business, or I actually read things. I kind of soften my mind. Reading still kind of like work, but it's actually less talking to people, engaging with people. It's helping me center myself. I think women have to do that in the workplace, especially if you're a high executive, high achiever, striver. You have to have non-negotiable time that you dedicate to yourself. So that's number one. Number two, I also think it's important to give yourself grace for mistakes. We are taught not to do that, I think, as women, particularly high-striving women. I'm not perfect. I literally had this conversation with my daughter yesterday. She's eight, and she was asking about a topic that I thought was like I had a couple more years before she was going to ask about it. <laughs> and so when I was talking to her about it, I said to her, I go, and mommy's going to, you always come to me, you know, feel free. We're, I want, But I'm going to promise you I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to say things are wrong. And I just ask for your patience. And because I want to teach her too, like mistakes are okay. So we have to give ourselves more grace for the fact that we'll make mistakes. That helps with, our, I think, mental stress. You know, you're not going to be perfect. The last thing I will say is ask for help. Mm -hmm. You know, ask your partner for help, you know, and don't apologize that you're asking for help. We always say, I'm so sorry, but can you absolutely take that out? You know what? I really need, it would be great if you could help me do X, Y, Z. Do you have time? Like be polite, be, you know, this is your partner. You love them. Don't be, you know, bossy if you don't have to be, unless you have to be, be bossy. But <laughs> remove the word, I'm sorry, don't apologize. We're all in it together. So asking for help, I think it's super important and not being apologetic about it is equally important. Joy Altamari, I loved every bit of this conversation. <laughs> I am so putting GSD blocks <laughs> on my calendar. I'm yes. going to steal that from you immediately. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Yes, Jean. I loved it too. If you want to find out more about me, my Instagram is at Joy Altamare, which is J-O-Y-A-L-T-I-M-A-R-E. And I'm also on LinkedIn, Joy Altamare there. 
As we dive into our mailbag, just a friendly reminder that Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. If you are thinking that you might be ready to join a credit union, visit bcu.org to learn ways to secure your financial future. And Chelsea Zhu, our associate producer, is joining me today for our mailbag. Catherine is a little under the weather. We hope that she feels better soon. Hey, Chelsea, how are you? Hey, Jean. I'm doing really good. And wow, I thought that everything that Joy said was so amazing. That anecdote that she told about sitting in that marathon meeting and, you know, seeing all of her colleagues have their wives give them their plates of lunch. I feel like that's going to stay with me for a long time. Right? I think we don't, well, we know so much more than we used to know about each other's lives at home just because of the pandemic. And I hope that based on anecdotes like this, we can all be a little more empathetic about each other's lives sympathetic about each other's lives, at least be able to put ourselves in each other's shoes a little bit more. Because yeah, we all have so many different stresses on our plate, particularly as women. And we need to, if people are not being empathetic or sympathetic, step up and try to advocate for what we need. And I've been very impressed by people in your generation. For those of you who don't know or who haven't gotten to know Chelsea, Chelsea is our associate producer. She is right out of school. She's got great skills, mad skills, but she just has joined us within the last year to work on the podcasts that we are building at Her Money. And I've been very impressed by the way I've seen people of your age and your generation advocate for themselves a little more. I think you guys are braver than I was at your age. Do you feel brave? Do you feel able to, I know I'm putting you on the spot because I am, (laughs) I am your boss, but do you feel able to ask for what you need and ask for what you want? Yeah. I don't know about brave. Well, I don't, I guess I don't feel brave, but I do feel like in general, people have gotten like more sympathetic I also think it comes from just going through remote school and online classes. I feel like people kind of disappeared all the time for personal reasons, and you just had to be forgiving. And I hope that that is something that we will all take out of the pandemic as we go forward to kind of just keep that attitude of you might not know everything that's going on in somebody's life. So you should lean towards being empathetic whenever you can. Agreed. Agreed. Well, we've got some questions, Chelsea. I know. Can we dig into our mailbag and see what comes up? Yeah, for sure. So our first question today comes to us from Leslie. She writes, Hi, Jean and team. I am a single mom of two boys, ages eight and five, Over the holidays, the topic of financial gifting was raised by both sets of grandparents. Thankfully, my ex-husband set up 529s for both of them, so contributing there is always an option. But I think a part of me is still nervous that my sons might not make college a part of their futures, in which case it might be better to save money for them in a separate account. 
My plan is to help them open IRAs as soon as they have earned income. But before then, is there anything else I should be doing or any other accounts I should know about? Thank you so much. So Leslie, thank you so much for the question. Thanks for writing. I'm a big fan of Leslie's because Leslie happens to be my middle name. I don't use it all that often, but I like it an awful lot. And this is a great question because we know that not every child is going to college. And for that reason, there are some financial aid experts who really emphasize not fully funding college even if you can inside of a 529, putting away enough to get you started, but not enough to finish in case you happen to have a child who does not want to continue their education. There are ways that you can use the assets in a 529 if they don't want to go to college. You can pass those assets on to another child. You can use the assets for all forms of education. So it doesn't have to be college. It could be trade school. It could be some other form of continuing education. But I think that you've got a point. And it gives us an opportunity to talk about a different kind of account. And these are UGMA and UTMA accounts, U-G-M-A and U-T-M-A. So both of these, one is UGMA is Uniform Gift to Minors account. UTMA is Uniform Transfers to Minor account. And these are accounts that are created for children to hold gifts that they receive. The gifts are irrevocable. So once you put money into an account, you cannot revoke that money. You can't take it back. The child owns the assets. And because the child owns the assets, the account is held and reported under their social security number. And it gets some preferential tax treatment. Investment earnings are taxed as if they were the minor's income. And so because your kids don't have earnings, they are going to be taxed at the child's lower rate, which if you amass enough money in these accounts can be fairly beneficial. The the tax benefits are not quite as good as those with a 529. Assets in a 529 grow tax-free until you pull them out for college. And when you pull them out, there are no additional taxes owed. So that's a big benefit. But this is a benefit as well. One thing to consider about these UGMA and UTMA accounts is that once they hit 18, in most cases, that money is theirs. And they can use it for whatever they want to use it for. They could buy a car. They could take a trip. They could do something that you perhaps are not in favor of. So when you put the money into this account, that's just something to think about. You may feel better holding the money yourself in some way until you feel like your kids are old enough to do the responsible things with them. But if you do that, then you don't necessarily get the tax benefits of those accounts. So I think that a combination of 529s and maybe an UGMA account might be a very, very good way to go in your case. And I would say the most important part of the equation is education. 
you want your kids to understand that you're saving for them to go to college or that you're saving for the other goals that they may have in their life. And because they know there's money there, you want to talk to them about responsible uses for this money as they get older. And for everybody else who's listening, if you've got 529 college savings accounts or if you've been thinking about opening them, Leslie did absolutely the right thing. She let the grandparents know that these accounts exist. And that's how we get other people to chip in for our kids' college education. When they ask, what can I get your child for their birthday? You say, well, a gift to the 529 would be hugely appreciated. Yeah, that's really smart to make it a family and a community effort. I think so. And college is so expensive. Chelsea, you know this, you just got out. And it's really hard to swing it for most people. We've got a massive student debt problem in the United States. And there has been a lot of research showing that grandparents in particular want to contribute. They want to help out. And so allowing them to do so, giving them instructions, so to speak, or at least the path to follow in order to make a contribution is, I think, the right thing to do. We've got one more? Yes. Our next question comes from Rebecca. She writes, Dear Jean, in my 20s, I got into a spectacular amount of credit card debt, over $20,000. I'm now 32 and just paid the last bill. But there's now a part of my brain that feels like I somehow have leeway to get back into debt again. I've proven to myself that I can pay the debt down, so is it really that bad to throw caution to the wind from time to time and spend more than I have cash to cover? I guess my question is twofold. First, is going into debt a few times a year really that bad? For example, for a vacation or holiday spending? And second, is there a way to break myself off of this pattern of thinking? I know that paying a credit card company interest every month makes zero sense, but I also like the flexibility that credit cards give my budget. Am I thinking about this all wrong? Please help me be less of a financial disaster. Rebecca, you are so not a financial disaster. You're thinking about this in all the right ways. And I really love this question because I think many, many people are having the exact same thoughts that you are. Hey, I did it once. I paid down the credit card debt once. I can certainly do it again. But I want you to actually think back to how you felt when you were getting on this path to pay down the credit card debt. Think about how you felt when you realized you had over $20,000 in debt. What did that do to you emotionally? Did it make you anxious? Did it make you unhappy? Did it make you feel as if you couldn't live the life that you wanted to live because you were working in service of this credit card debt? And think about how long it took you to dig your way out. I understand what you're saying. And I think there is a place in our lives for credit cards. I could open my wallet and show you my wallet and you would see that I believe that there is a place in our lives for credit cards. But I think that place is for day-to-day spending where you can pay them off the month that you make those charges and then rack up some benefits in terms of cash back or frequent flyer miles, as well as the occasional, and I would 
underline occasional, if I had a Sharpie right now, the occasional emergency. I would much rather see you throw caution to the wind, as you put it, in a planned out sort of way. So if you know that you've got a vacation coming up, I'd rather see you put the money away for that vacation for several months ahead of time so that you don't have to deal with the stress of paying back interest on a credit card that, by the way, you're right, interest rates have not just gone up, they have gone way up and they're going to go up more. So I would like to see you in the habit of trying to preempt those goals, fully fund an emergency cushion for emergencies so you have it, and then use the credit cards as almost a cash management tool, as well as a second tier emergency cushion if you need it. There's a lot of research on what debt does to us. And I'm making some assumptions in thinking that it has done this to you. But when we look at the things about our money that make us the most stressed and the most unhappy, debt is the biggest one on the list. So what I'm trying to get you to do is just flip the equation. Try to save for those throw caution to the wind goals so that you can treat yourself before those goals hit. If you get into a situation where one really does come up as a surprise, then I'd be inclined based on your past behavior to allow you to slide through and go with it. But I really don't want to see you making that kind of in-debt, out-of-debt, in-debt, out-of-debt living a habit. I think that as far as your overall financial health, your overall financial stress, and your overall financial happiness, this is a much better recipe for success. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about kind of being in that cycle and having that stress always be in the back of your head. Like, I think that that does have a huge impact on us. And that was what our whole conversation with Joy was about too. Yeah, exactly. And having an emergency cushion, and when I talk about an emergency cushion, I mean, there's, again, I like the research and there's research that shows, you know, anywhere from about six weeks to six months worth of living expenses is probably sufficient. But just having that, to me, is your insurance policy against having to go into credit card debt when an emergency hits. And I understand a vacation is not an emergency, but there are medical bills, there are repairs, there are things that happen to your car and things that happen to your home and things that you just have to deal with. And Knowing that you can deal with them without having to rely on the credit card, I think is a much better way to live your life. So again, thank you so much for the question. It's a really good one. Keep them coming, everybody. We've got a whole bunch of shows that we are putting together over the next couple of weeks and months. And if you have anything that you want to talk about, just write to us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Thank you, Chelsea. Thanks, Jean. This week's episode is also sponsored by Daffy. 
Daffy is a community platform for giving that helps people be more generous more often. It's a new year and it's natural, even advised to focus on your fitness and financial goals for the year. What's great about Daffy is that they're helping people set giving goals so that they can give back more regularly to the causes they're most passionate about. After you sign up and you set a goal that's right for you, Daffy can help you contribute all at once, or it can help you set a little money aside for charity every week, every month, or every quarter. And there are so many ways to contribute. You can give cash. You can give with Apple Pay. You can use debit or credit cards. You can also donate stock or crypto. Daffy even makes it easy to get a charitable tax deduction by storing all of your donation receipts. The best part, whenever you're inspired, you can give to nearly every charity in the United States, all from a single app. Start giving with Daffy today and get $25 to donate to the charity of your choice. Just go to daffy.org slash hermoney. And in today's Thrive, we have been talking about inflation and the possibility of a recession for quite a while now. And many of us have had to tighten our budgets over the past year, but there are some expenses that you just shouldn't cut, no matter how tight your budget gets. One of those is healthcare. As we talked about in this episode, an investment in your physical health is also an investment in your career and your financial health. At hermoney.com, we talk to experts about the most important healthcare items to keep during tough times and how you can save on costs without compromising your health. Number one, keep up with those dental appointments. Those regular six-month checkups, some people say you need them at four months, but let's go with six. They are the first line of defense for catching small problems before they become much bigger and much more expensive. If you're struggling to fit those visits into your budget, consider a dental savings plan, especially if you don't have dental insurance. Dental savings plans work kind of like a Costco membership. You pay an annual fee to access a network of dentists that charge reduced prices. You also don't want to skip your eye doctor appointments. If you're young and you don't have any concerns, you can get by with a checkup once every five years. But if you're having trouble with your sight, you want to go more often, maybe annually. And just like dental care, there are insurance and membership plans specifically for vision that can help you save. Next, don't skip those yearly physicals. The vast majority of health insurance plans include free preventative care. So, If a potential bill has been holding you back, you're probably covered. And if you don't have insurance, look into the income-dependent subsidies offered through healthcare.gov. For certain kinds of doctor visits, you can also check if your doctor offers telehealth, which can be less expensive than going in person. Finally, Never cut out prescription meds. If the costs are eating at you, talk to your pharmacist about switching from a brand name to a generic. You can also save by joining a prescription savings program like GoodRx or ordering your prescriptions through an online pharmacy. Many of these services can't be used with insurance, but they can be much cheaper in the long run. So compare all your options before you make a decision. And when it comes to insurance in general, remember to shop around as your medical needs change. The plan that you picked out last year might not be the most cost effective today. 
Thank you for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks so much to Joy Altamare for her insight on women's health in the workplace. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines, BCU, and Daffy. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. We'll be right back.